0: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Whitman Wire podcast. I'm your host, Mia Graham, and today I'm sitting down virtually over Zoom with Scout Hutchinson to discuss the campaign strategies used by the Democratic Party. Scout is a junior at Whitman and an opinion columnist on the Whitman Wire. She recently published an opinion piece in this week's issue of the Wire titled The Democratic Party Needs to Act Less Like a Used Car Salesman, and more like your cool high school government teacher. For those of you who haven't read it yet, well, honestly, just go read it right now because it's an extremely fun and relevant read. But if you're suffering from screen fatigue and blue light induced eye strain, just sit back, relax, close your eyes, maybe even sniff some lavender essential oils, and I'll give you the gist. As Scout tried to make sense of what happened in the 2016 election and anticipates the 2020 election, she points out that the uninspiring candidates and the cheap sales techniques used by the Democratic Party are failing to inspire voters. So now I'd like to welcome Scout on the show so we can hear it from her. Scout, welcome to the Whitman Wire podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me. That was an incredible intro, by the way. That was (laughs) great. I'm sorry. I had to say something about it. I love (laughs) lavender Um, essential oils. Definitely recommend.
0: Oh yeah. They're a must. Um, So first of all, I'd like to know where you were and what you were doing the night of November 8th,
1: 2016. Um, So I actually, I remember this night very, very clearly because I was kind of just in my room. I decided not to partake in like my family's watching of everything that was going on. And funny enough, I actually have a Snapchat memory from when that was happening because I was just sitting there refreshing the page or even on Snapchat, because Snapchat also had the delegate numbers and my dog was in bed next to me. And I remember taking a photo of my dog, just sleeping soundly and being like, when you're a dog and you have no idea what's going on um so I I get to have that memory every single year on that day so mm. it was definitely an interesting time I was also 16 in high school obviously I was not a voting age um so it was definitely a very interesting thing to be a part of because I got to see something that truly I had like no control over which I thought was interesting
0: Definitely. It's really hard to not be able to vote and watch those results come in.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and how nice would it be to be a dog? <laughs> during that? Yes, but, that's what I was thinking the whole time. I was like, gosh, when I, just <laughs> be, I would love to have no care in the world, just sleeping right now. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good life. Um, so what do you think happened that night for our country? Um, so... I think that it's really interesting when um, kind of like political pundits kind of look back and try to make use of something that we truly all kind of thought was not going to happen, which honestly, I mean, hindsight is incredible, but maybe we should have been a little bit more politically aware with how much of a sway he was actually having over voters. But I think that Honestly, I think it's incredible. I still don't think we know exactly what happened. But something that I've been kind of really looking into is like the specific types of candidates that the Democratic Party has been putting forth to the voters. Because we can always blame voters for not showing up or like not doing those types of things. But ultimately, we also have to blame the Democratic Party on who, which candidates they really um, put forth, because. Hillary Clinton was going to be the candidate probably no matter what. Like, yes, she did get a lot of the votes during primaries, but even with the amount of support that Bernie Sanders had, there was, pro- there was no way that they were not going to choose Hillary Clinton. So I think that I really just wanted to kind of put that into like the forefront of my writing, because I think that we're starting to see a very similar thing going on. And I'm really hoping that there's a different outcome this time personally but I still think that we haven't quite learned from our mistakes mm. of like how to inspire voters. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, I think the biggest thing is like, people just did not want to vote for, that, for Hillary Clinton, so. Right.
0: Definitely, those are great points. Um, so uh, you say in your article, and I'll quote here, All of this is justified by the idea that most voters are not interested in politics. The argument is condescending, misleading, and leads to an extremely elitist reputation for the Democratic Party." End quote. So can you explain this view a little bit um, and how it manifests in, let's say, Joe Biden's campaign?
1: Yeah, definitely. So I think kind of when I was approaching this I saw kind of two different specifically I kind of wanted to write this article kind of with the uh democratic national convention the dnc and then also this um these campaigns on social media that we've seen like hashtag never trump or hashtag settle for biden kind of working in tandem with each other of like the reaction of a nominee that people especially young people um he's definitely appealing to the moderate democratic vote but especially for young people just isn't that inspiring for us mm-hmm. um and so i kind of like looked at it of like okay so what's the first thing that the democratic party should do when trying to appeal to voters and it's like the first thing is find a candidate that appeals to voters well he only appeals to one specific type of voter so what's the second thing that we can do and i think that i kind of saw two things that they were trying to like kind of inspire voters and get this type of emotional reaction out of them so there's like two outcomes and it was like like an intense policy platform that no one understands that you can kind of um you can kind of you find on their website which there's also been a lot of issues with that of it not being up to date stuff like that just an extremely intense platform and then at the DNC there was these one sentence mission statements That really honestly, when I was watching, I felt like I got no information about his platform. And it was not that inspiring to me personally. And so I kind of wanted to talk about that of the fact that there's this idea that voters are not interested in politics, one, which kind of, I think, the best way to kind of look at it is like they kind of create this cycle of creating out-of-touch, out-of-reach platforms that only people who are like experts in their field can truly actually get through, which creates an uninformed voter-, voter basis, but then blames the fact that people are uninformed by the fact that they're just not interested and they don't take accountability. And then you get these one-sentence mission statements that just also don't inform voters and this idea that voters just don't want to be informed or don't care is just not true because they're not giving they're not being given the option to inform themselves in a way that would not take up all their time Hmm. and in a way that would like engage them because that's the biggest issue we need to figure out a way to inform voters where they can actually like have the time to do so sorry that was kind of long but that's kind of the gist
0: um, those are all really important points. And uh, I don't know, I'd like to hear your thoughts too on the DNC, I noticed, you know, a lot of it was talking about Joe Biden's character. That was something that kept coming up a lot. He's a really good guy. He's a decent guy, you know. Um, and every speaker would speak to Joe Biden's character, how he would ride the train um, back home every night to tuck his sons into bed. So I'm wondering, do you think uh, that focus on Joe Biden's character is an asset, or kind of taking
1: away from his candidacy in some ways. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think, I think one that's incredible. I think that having stories about someone's character is important with a campaign because it makes you feel like you're personally getting to know that person. And I think, but I do think that this is all in reaction to who he's running against, and um, putting the focus on the fact that he is better character than Donald Trump, who obviously has shown um, a lack thereof of character and stuff like that. And I think that it is incredibly important, but you see this at the DNC. I have this, like, I kind of was like, I think it's great to relate to your audience, but like not every single answer should just be a personal tip. Like if someone's asking you about actual policy change, which I do think we sometimes do get, at town halls we have people asking specifically about people's policies they always just go to the personal side like not even the personal side because the personal side is the policy itself but they go to the like how can I appeal to that everyday like worker being like oh well I grew up in a small town working class and just kind of leaving it at that and being like see I'm it's almost like they're trying to say that he's not elitist or like the democratic party is not elitist And yet the way to do that truly is to show their voters that they care, that they know what's going on. Mm. And I think that sometimes that doesn't happen. And I just think, I don't know, I would like to be able to tune in and be, and know like what's going on, Um, which I kind of get into of like, knowing what he's actually going to do is going to be the inspiring part. Not not just his character, which is important and in tandem, because I think we figured out that politicians' characters are incredibly important within their decision-making, but also knowing some of those decisions that he's going to make in tandem with that, I think is going to be really important.
0: Definitely. So you touched on this a little bit, but um, so when you're talking about solutions, maybe town halls, um, having more policy talk, but having that policy talk also be accessible. Um, So I'm wondering, you know, Your title of your article is um, The Democratic Party Needs to Act Less Like a Used Car Salesman and More Like Your Cool High School Government Teacher. So, I'm curious to know what was your high school government teacher like, and why should politics and specifically the Democratic Party uh, be doing more of that right
1: now? Yeah, so I think kind of how I got to the solution was one of the things that I always think about is wouldn't it be great if politicians treated which I didn't really put in my article but it was definitely something in my mind politicians treated every voter like a swing state voter because they do go to those states and they are personally involved and like asking questions and while I understand that it's completely impossible for you to go to every single state we do now have incredible platforms especially I feel like we figured out during this time of um, TV show, like TV interviews, um, any type of like webinar events, but they need to be formatted differently as if you are having a personal one-on-one conversation with someone. Um, And so (laughs) kind of how I got to this (laughs) weird thing of like, it should be more like um, a high school government teacher is because I think that we have this idea that for you to be a part of politics, you have to commit yourself to politics. You have to go to school, like you have to go to college and you have to like be a major in political science or you have to be like the Leslie notes of the world that that's the only thing that they care about. And like, that's the way that you participate in politics which is just not true. And I think that high school government um, which is something that was required um, at least within my high schools in Idaho allowed for a really, really engaging time for students who want to know about politics, but that's not entirely their life. They have other passions. And so I think that when someone who walks into a room with only politicians and only experts in their fields, they can feel incredibly, um, it's an incredibly like, And when I say elitist, I do mean wealth as well, but I also just mean elitist in the mindset of like education and the way that we kind of view education. It can be a very elitist environment and it is very hard for people to um, engage and feel as though their thoughts are worth just as much as like someone else's thoughts. Um, And I think that at least in my high school government class, um, my teacher, she was incredibly good at getting students involved in a way that it was not a judging environment, because we were all there to learn the same thing. We were all on equal playing fields. It didn't matter if, like, I personally wanted to go to college for politics, and another person wanted to go to college for, like, biology or mechanics. So I think that, and especially just because it was, like, the sit-down environment where she really, really, really cared about what we thought and cared that we learned. Not like, oh, this is what, like, I'm going to give you a one sentence thing, and then that means that you should do this. It was like, no, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to explain these specific types of policies, or I'm going to explain how this works. Because I think the biggest misconception with Joe Biden is when you actually look at his platform, he, especially like his climate change platform, these are some of the biggest, I hate to use this word because they should be normal but radical changes like he has a lot of major radical changes that I think if people knew about, especially with all the stuff that's going on, they would become invigorated by, Oh my gosh, he has a solution that could actually like affect, because it's now like life or death. It's like, it could affect my life. And so I think, and instead of just being like, he rode the train all the way home Which is an incredible feat and amazing on him, but like, no, 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 this is what he's actually going to do. This is how my policies, which might be national, are going to affect you personally. Because I think that there's this like personal disconnect within national politics. National politics is just a large local government because each policy does affect everyone. People make it seem like policies don't affect you. Every single policy will affect you in some way, shape, or form. So I think that. In a long winded answer, I think that the way that the feeling that I had in my government class um, was just the fact that every single student was engaged no matter what they wanted to do in their lives. And we actually got to learn and grapple with topics. And my Gov teacher was there for every single person and, like, just wanted us to be in an engaging environment of politics which honestly led to very very high expectations about how the political process within citizenship should work Mm -hmm. that there should be this engagement because to be quite frank they work for us Mm -hmm. like we like that's the way that this works um so i think that it kind of set high expectations that one-liners just don't work anymore or comparing yourself to Donald Trump just doesn't work anymore because something that I kind of um, disagree, sorry, this is kind of long, but disagree with my dad on is like, he's like, we just need someone um, who like is better than Donald Trump, which is very, very true. But I also think we also need to hire our expectations because our low expectations are what got us here in the first place. So I think that, just going back to like that little inch above that we were is just not going to work anymore. We need to set our expectations high, so yeah.
0: Thanks for that. That was really well put. Um, Sorry, that was incredibly long,
1: Um, but yeah.
0: (laughs) it's great. Um, So it sounds to me like, you know, it's not just about the Democratic Party or Joe Biden's campaign, it's also about us as citizens and how to engage in politics. Because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the US has a very uh, character driven politics, like we elect one person and, and whether we like them or not, like charisma is a huge part of it, you know, but that's not everything. Um, And I really appreciate how you've been highlighting that being a good citizen means being engaged in policies because policies are are what changes the world. Um,
1: yeah. And so. it's first and foremost, the party's responsibility to make those policies accessible. And I think that we need to start um, kind of like forcing them to do so. Um, I would be interested also, like I think that it's really cool that, cause like when I was writing this, Um, I kind of started with the title because it was something that just came to mind off the cuff, but I'm glad that it personally related to you as well on, um, your government teacher. Um, so that's, that's really, really cool. No, I had Um, the
0: coolest government teacher. I don't know what it is about high school government teachers, but they're so fun. Um, and I wish, yeah, I definitely wish, you know, town halls were, were more like my government class (laughs) for
1: sure. Yeah. Um, because if you ask a question to your teacher, they can't just be like, I too grew up in a small town working class family, um, so I understand, and then just, like, move on, like, just, like, and they're so good at it, that's where the charisma comes into play, because yeah. you're kind of just like, wait, nothing was answered, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, for um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I also, like, as citizens, we should be demanding real answers. I like that. Yeah. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Do you have any lo- last thoughts you'd like to share about, um,
1: or about the election in general? Um, I think one thing is um, kind of the reason why I was talking about all this. I still think that with all of these issues that we need to like fix, and the Democratic Party needs to address, by no means. Am I trying to disincentivize um, any type of political participation with the parties that we have right now? Because I do think that it's still incredibly important to like vote. And I think that this is just another thing that hopefully they can start to fix during the election so it does incentivize voters, because I am seeing a lot of commonalities. Um, it seems as though this time we're starting to realize how important it is to like hashtag settle for Biden. Um, It would have been nice if there was a hashtag settle for Hillary Clinton uh, Mm -hmm. four years ago. Um, But I think that after this election, we have to get through this election. But after this election, I think that hopefully the Democratic Party or the Republican Party as well, realize that they need to, that we're starting to have high expectations. Um, And that we don't want to settle anymore, but it is still incredibly important right now to settle or also look at the platforms, because I think that the hashtag settle for Biden campaign would be less of a huge following if his platforms were out there, because I think that people would realize that while there might be some things that they disagree with him on, he has a lot of change that isn't settling, it's saving people's lives. So I think that that's also incredibly important.
2: And And realizing
1: that, oh, go, go, go. Go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, and realizing that um, while we like to say that the president is one political figurehead, it's not. It's a group of people, and it's also um, who we elect for Supreme Court justices, stuff like that, um, which maybe you guys will be, Hopefully I'll be maybe sending something out on that and stuff like that. But I think that just, yeah, the Democratic Party needs to realize that maybe people wouldn't be settling if they were actually telling us their platforms.
0: And and remembering, you know, that politics doesn't stop after the election. We're still here. We're still going to hold government accountable. Um, So it's just knowing which candidates that we can go to that will listen to
1: our demands. Yes, definitely. In which candidates will then listen to overall activist demands as well. This is just one step.
0: (laughs) It is. Well, um, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate all your insights and your thoughts. Um, Again, if you haven't read her article already, make sure to go read Scout's article in issue two of The Wire. Um, And yeah, that about wraps it up. Thanks for
1: talking with me, Scout. Yeah, of course, thank you so much for having me on. I can't wait to listen to every podcast that you do. (laughs) Thanks, all right.
3: Hello, my name is Annie Means and I'm a podcast reporter here at The Wire. And on this episode, I wanna talk about one very peculiar thing at Pioneer Park. For those of you who are new to Walla Walla, Pioneer Park is a massive public park that sits some blocks away from Main Street. It's beautiful, lush, green. It has massive trees. But as you make your way deeper into the park, you'll notice a very strange structure along with a lot of chirping. A massive tented cage sits on the edge of the park, housing an incredible amount of exotic birds. This is the Pioneer Park Aviary. Just to give some perspective on how peculiar this is, when I was visiting the aviary, I thought I would list where all these birds actually came from. There's a silver pheasant from southeastern China. A ring dove, it's domestic. A golden pheasant from central China. A gray peacock pheasant from western Assam and Bhutan. An impian bird from the Himalayas. A cinnamon teal from western, north, and central America. A black-bellied whistling duck from tropical America. An Australia wood duck from Australia. A Lacian duck from Hawaii so we have this aviary with birds from all around the globe yet the exoticness of the birds isn't what makes it peculiar what's so strange is that this very well-to-do aviary is in the middle of walla walla washington in our tiny small town reasonably i had some questions the first being why is the aviary here and how did it get here to answer my questions i reached out to the caretaker at the pioneer park aviary My name is Becky Donley. Uh, I am the caretaker at Pioneer Park
4: Aviary and we are here right in the middle of the aviary right now.
3: Perfect. And how long have you worked here?
4: I worked here since April of 2017.
3: And can you explain to me what day-to-day operations are like around here?
4: Day-to-day operations uh, usually include I show up in the morning, Check my emails, uh, check my messages, see if anything new is going on. Then I come out, uh, do a quick little look around, see how things look out here, if everything's going okay. Uh, then I start in just feeding and cleaning for the most part. Lots of feeding and squatting down, picking up poop over and over and over again.
3: <laughs> <laughs> uh, and. Something that we're really curious about is how all these birds got here. So can you fill us in with whatever information you have about where these birds came from?
4: Um, a lot of them, I sadly do not know the backstories of. They were here when I got here, but um, I have brought in a few since I've been here and they come from everywhere. Um, a lot of them come in through the mail. I, the swans uh, were from a breeder down in Florida. Got a call at you know, 5 o'clock in the morning, one morning from the post office saying, Hey, you've got a big box here.
3: And, and the boxes are, are birds. Yeah. And
4: big, yeah, big, specially designed boxes uh, for shipping birds. They've got air vents in them and yeah, wow. they, yeah. they handle the traveling pretty well. <laughs> um, some of the birds I travel myself to get. Um, I've just ordered some from a breeder up in Spokane. So... Within the next few days, I'll be driving up Spokane, picking them up, but driven over to the Seattle area, down to Southern Oregon. It's it's a little less stressful on the birds, I think, to pick them up in a car than have them shipped through the mail. So I try to do that whenever possible.
3: Perfect. I'm also curious, do you ever get donations of birds from the community, people reaching out to say, hey, I've got these exotic birds, I don't know where to put them.
4: I do, actually I've got, um, I have a red golden pheasant right now that somebody donated to us. The uh, two blue peacock hens, or peafowl hens, that are in there right now were donated, um, and there are some canvasback ducks that were donated by the canvasback winery. (laughs) They come by from time to time and go, oh, those are our ducks. (laughs)
3: And could you tell us about the history of this Avery and how this place was built, why it was built, where did the birds come from?
4: You know, I don't know a whole lot about the history and there isn't a whole lot written. Uh, There's a plaque out here that has its dedication back in 1983 with some names on it. I've looked up the names online, haven't found much about it. Um, I do know that since back in the the 40s, birds have been here in the park. I know swans and peacocks used to just roam free. Uh, Then, I don't know, something happened. They decided to build an enclosure to keep them safe, I think. Uh, It said back in 1982, the Lionesses Club raised $90,000 to build the aviary and that's that's how it all started. Cool.
3: Yeah. And can you fill me in on the Lionesses' Club? I've heard of the Lions' Club, but what is this organization? I'm afraid I
4: do not know much about the Lionesses' Club at all. Oh, that's <laughs> totally fine. But yeah, the Lions' Club continues to come out and support, they do a lot of uh, help with construction and little projects.
3: And I, so I read the plaque when I was just poking around here earlier and it's um, Bonnie and something. Brayden. Bonnie
4: and Grace Braden yeah they were the names that I've tried researching tried looking up you know Bonnie and grace braden aviary Bonnie and grace braden walla walla history wh- and I just can't really seem to to find anything uh closest I found was you know, on uh, an internment uh list website and they have a Bonnie and a grace braden buried back in nineteen seventy something like one in seventy one and seventy eight but you know, this wasn't built unless they left the money to the Lionesses Club and years you know later actually
3: saw it come to fruition. I sought out the plaque that Becky mentioned to see if I could learn anything more. What I found were the two names she already mentioned, Grace and Bonnie Braden, and it appears in 1983 that they, along with the Walla Walla Lionesses Club, donated the aviary to the Walla Walla City government. Apart from that, the plaque didn't reveal much. So I went where any reputable journalist goes for information, to Google. Google, however, also proved to be unfruitful. So I reached even further and went to the Whitman archives. There I talked with Dana Bronson, the associate archivist, and she helped me locate several UB articles. They mentioned a series of fundraising requests for the aviary over the last few decades but nothing about Grace or Bonnie. It seems that I had hit a dead end in my search to find out who these women were. So I googled one last time, but I found a very different article about this aviary. From the YaktriNews.com, I read the headline, Teen Arrested for Killing of Birds at Walla Walla Aviary. According to news, and I quote, Police have arrested a 15-year-old boy for allegedly killing, torturing, and stealing multiple birds at the Pioneer Park Aviary. Police said that the birds were killed in two separate break-ins, one on the night of May 14th and the other on the night of May 31st. It appears as though the teen climbed a chain link fence that surrounded the aviary and cut a net meant to keep the birds in and people out. Police said a witness provided them with credible information about these crimes. In early June, after the group of friends of the Pioneer Park Aviary offered a $1,000 reward for any information leading to arrest, unquote. This created a small bit of a media storm and the city even had to come out and respond with a statement to it.
2: Hello Walla Walla, Andy Coleman here again. Uh, I have the privilege of being the city's Parks and Recreation Director. Uh, uh, We're here today at the aviary, which I know most of the community is aware. Uh, We've had some unfortunate uh, incidents at the the aviary recently uh, where um, it appears someone has has broke into the aviary at night and and unfortunately killed about a dozen dozen birds. Uh, Those include pheasants, Ducks and um, some peacocks. Uh, fortunately, there's there's no swans uh, that w- that were uh, involved in, in this uh, incident, uh, as, as was um, reported before. That was a miscommunication. So thankfully, no swans. Uh, but again, um, 12 12 total of birds were lost uh, over three. There's three separate uh, incidents of, of break-ins recently. So. Uh, it's definitely sad we, we realize how, how important this facility is uh, to the community. There's been an outpouring of support um, from from those uh, who who heard about it and are concerned and, and want to help. so so thanks to walla Walla, I've spent a lot of time on the phone receiving uh, people uh, people's calls who want to assist uh, with the efforts and so a little report on that is that uh, to date um, thanks to a a very substantial donation from uh, Mr. Mike Murr and his wife. Uh, EVA, uh, they donated $24,000 and we also have about $4,000 donated by by others in the community. Uh, we're up to $28,000 uh, to pay for um, a security system, uh, re- replacement birds, uh, and also additional security lighting uh, in the exterior of the, the aviary net pin. I'd um, also like to highlight a, a, another story, um, a, a young lady, uh, 11-year-old named uh, Ava Ford and her her uh, neighborhood has has sold um, wristbands. She made and, and, and collected donations uh, for the aviary, and each donor got a, got a wristband that, that she made. So, uh, or maybe it's a bracelet. You're probably referred to, refer to as a bracelet. Uh, so, it raised $370. Um, so, thank you uh, to that young lady. Uh, so, just again, thanks to the community for uh, the outpouring of support. Uh, we're, we're gonna take some uh, measures to make sure this does not happen again, thanks to, thanks to the donations that have been received.
3: I wanted to hear more from Becky's perspective. So I asked her about the deaths. Yeah, earlier this year,
4: um, over about a three week period, um, we had repeated break-ins. Um, yeah, the first time I wasn't sure what was going on. I you know thought maybe a predator had gotten in and killed some birds, uh, but then you know, about a week later, uh, got another break-in. This time, I could tell there were was human involvement. Doors were open, uh, obvious signs of of human involvement. And then, about uh, ten days a week after that, um, they came back again, wow. and more birds were killed. So, then the police got involved, and luckily, they they have caught the the suspects, and
3: they're awaiting trial now.
4: Good. that's pretty crazy
3: honestly. Mm. So not only does the tiny town of Walla Walla have an exotic bird aviary with mysterious and unknown origins, this town is also the home to a small bird massacre. There's clearly more to both the story of the aviary's founding and also to the motive of the bird killer, but for now we'll leave it at that and just be happy that our small town is even home to such interesting and compelling birds. I'm Annie Means, thank you for listening.
5: Hello, uh, this is Jack, the radio coordinator here at The Wire podcast, Uh, just coming in here at the end to wrap up and tell you what is in The Wire newspaper this week, if you haven't already read it. Uh, First up, we'll do news, got an article from Grace Jackson about the Whitman bookstore and how it's to be run by a big box bookseller. According to the AAUP tip, our new independent bookstore will be run by a big box seller by next spring. How will this affect merchandise, employment, prices, more, how did the college come to this decision? All of that in that article. We have another article that's by Grace Fasio that is on new site classes be an interview with psych department chair and incoming professors on the decision to add new classes and their aspirations uh we have an article from abby malzwitski malzewski excuse me (laughs) very horrible pronunciation but anyway uh she has an article, it's an update on Whitman's relationship with the Walla Walla Police Department. Uh, has Whitman's relationship with the WWPD improved since Officer Nat Small said in a statement that he'd alter his tattoo to remove um, the SS symbol? It's a pretty heavy one. And then we have an article on student-owned businesses from uh, Lena Friedman student-owned businesses and how they're faring during the the pandemic. We have an article from Sean Gannon that's on smoke resources, a short description just on smoke slash fire in Walla Walla and giving info on resources for community members and students. And then we'll move on to arts and entertainment uh, there's a review of the new Twilight book, Midnight Sun. Uh, that should be pretty interesting. I happen to be, you know, a closeted Twilight, Twilight fan myself. Um, so I'll be giving that one a read. Uh, and there's an article from Mo. Oh, sorry, that was from, um, Helena Backus. And then from Mo Dow, we have Whitman Senior Arts, uh, which is an Instagram account. Uh, and Mo will be interviewing seniors and maybe faculty on what it's like to be making art socially distanced. On to feature, we have First Year Fall FOMO written by Genevieve Vogel, uh, an interview with first years about starting college virtually. Uh, we have an article from Michael Colin Nelson about where everyone's semester is being taken place what it's like to be in Walla Walla at home or abroad, Uh, what are the challenges and opportunities that come from a remote semester. And then an opinion, we have an article from Victoria Helmer on digital minimalism and the need for structured rest. We have one from Sile Sermon on mental health care, and it is needed in K-12 schools now more than ever Uh, Scout Hutchinson has uh, the article that is talked about earlier um, in this episode, uh, the one about uh, how Dems appeal to young voters, um, how that needs to change the whole government teacher analogy. We have an article from Ava Laponis that is on the paradigm of likability and electability in political discourse um, exclusionary environment and politics. Uh, so related stuff there of course. In sports we have uh, an article from Tate Kedang on Athletics Instagram. Whitman's Athletics Instagram controversy and reactions from alumni. And then we have an article from Tucker Grinn on club sports online, how club sports are adapting to meeting the online space. Uh, and of course after that uh, is the back page, the funny section, satirical articles, which I will not share the headlines for because that's typically, you know, the biggest part of the joke. So, you will just have to read that in The Wire on our website. Um, And with that, conclude this episode of The Wire. But, real quick, before we go, just wanted to explain that uh, the story on racism in the theater department uh, will be continued um, and revised uh, and put out. a a future story on in very early October for the fourth issue of The Wire, uh, where we will be focusing more on um, the administration department of theater and the drama club and what they're doing uh, to make change, uh, while also including uh, pieces from Jordan's interview sort of interweaved into that um, just to give you a full perspective. And so, yeah, with that, that is our episode, and we will see you uh, next week. So,
1: goodbye.